bought our union car and began driving Don's VW Camper up to Fairbanks in uh, summer 1975. Is this information going to help my student make a better decision in the field? And um, additionally, did the student get an opportunity to apply this new skill or knowledge in the decision-making process. This is Tom Murphy, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour Podcast. You are tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour Podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by MND Safety, a global leader in avalanche hazard management, and our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing, drink beer outside, with additional support from Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. I'm excited to share a great conversation with y'all today that I had in the fall with Tom Murphy. Tom is one of the co-founders of the American Institute for Avalanche Research and Education, and Tom shares with us his journey to that point in his career, um, and then you know some of the ins and outs of of the early days of Airy, and shares with us some some thoughts on where avalanche education is and should be going moving into the future. We are going to dive right into that interview with Tom Murphy, but first I'd like to ask you all for your um, involvement in some research that's going on. A good friend Kelly McNeil has put together a survey that's um, aimed at, at gaining a better understanding of how people utilize different information of a public avalanche forecast. And so the hopes with this survey is that we'll gain a better understanding of how people are using the forecast and how forecast centers can improve on these products. So it's gonna take about 10 minutes of your time and it's gonna be completely anonymous. Um, And you can find a link to that survey in the show notes of this episode. So thanks in advance for your involvement of that. Um, Again, it's super important that we try and get a a great sample of of people answering this survey. So spread the word to your friends. See if we can get a big involvement from our our community here within the podcast and also the greater avalanche community uh, in the United States at least. So thank you for, for your help with that. And of course, a big thanks goes out to the supporters of this podcast, MND Safety, 10 Barrel Brewing, and Interwest Insurance. We couldn't do this without you. And as the podcast grows, we appreciate your continued support. Without further ado, here we go with our interview with Tom Murphy. Hey, Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks, Caleb. Where are you calling from today? Describe what you're doing and, and where you are and what the weather's like. Beautiful Gunnison, Colorado, where things are starting to cool off. and looking out the windows at the trees starting to turn, blue skies, no smoke. So, um, so yeah, it's a, it's a great place and um, glad to be alive. All right. Yeah. And just for reference, this is being recorded at the end of September, September 29th here. So... We're both, Tom and I are both looking forward to a nice, nice winter to come. Um, Tom Murphy is really a pioneer in avalanche education. Uh, Tom was one of the co-founders of the American Institute for Avalanche Research and Education. Um, And we're going to sit down and talk about how all that came about. Um, Tom, I was hoping you could give us a bit of your background, where you grew up and Maybe like how you came to love skiing and backcountry skiing and some of the jobs in snow and avalanches that you had prior to coming 
up or helping to come up with the idea of Aerie? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I was, uh, I was the oldest of, uh, of five kids and we were living in upper state New York and, and in the early sixties, my dad, um, started getting transferred by his company. Uh, he was working as a salesman for an industrial fabrics, uh, company. They transferred him from New York out to Kansas city to the, out to California in the East Bay. And then, um, we finally ended up in Portland, Oregon in the 1970s. So the sixties were a real awesome time for me as a young man, um, traveling from, you know, New York to Kansas city to California and, uh, and then up to Oregon and, um, you know, talk about an incredible look at a cross section of America. I was very, very fortunate and really kind of, I think that sort of primed my interest in, in, in travel and going to different places, seeing different things. And up in, uh, up in, uh, Oregon is where I started college and I had a roommate who um, invited me to go out on a climbing trip with him over to Smith Rocks in Central Oregon. And as we were crossing over um, the pass up around Mount Hood, dropping down into Central Oregon, I saw this figure disappearing in, in, into the woods with skis on. And I asked my room, I go, what's that guy doing? And he goes, oh, he's cross-country skiing. And I was immediately intrigued because I had always enjoyed, you know, hiking and exploring the mountains in the summertime. And now all of a sudden, you know, I saw this avenue to being able to do it in the wintertime. Came back from that trip to Smith Rocks and bought a train ticket up to up to Seattle where REI was when in the early 70s, that's where you went and you, you got all your equipment at REI. So took the train up to REI, bought a pair of bonus skis and alpha boots and my backcountry career began. Um, Soon after I started 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 you know backcountry skiing on that on that basically Nordic equipment, um, I ended up quitting college and uh, there was nothing there that college was preparing me for that was of interest to me. So it was that skiing into the woods thing that was kind of grabbed me. And my good friend and ski buddy Don Seville and I took a road trip road trip that that winter. We went over to Utah, Colorado, and Idaho, and that summer. We ended up moving to Ketchum to uh, continue ski bombing in a little bit nicer snow climate than, than Mount Hood. Um, so, uh, you, you know, at that period of time, we couldn't, uh, and we couldn't afford ski passes. We were, I was in my early 20s. Don was, I think, even in his late teens. And, and so, you know, we spent a bunch of time, you know, just touring around, ski touring around. The Ketchum Sun Valley area particularly spent a bunch of time up in the Galena Summit. Uh, we did our first hut, hut trip up to Pioneer Cabin that winter. They still had the Southern Pacific Railroad wool blankets up there at that period of time. It was, uh, it was uh, old, a cabin that was built by Southern Pacific. And um, somewhere along that line there, I'd gotten a bug uh, for Alaska. And I think initially it was from reading about a... Uh, a, a ski traverse that some that was in a North Face catalog that someone had done up in the Brooks Range, and I just thought, oh my God, that's incredible! Alaska ski touring, Brooks Range. Also, my dad had 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 done a sales trip up there, and I remember him telling me that if I loved the mountains, I'd love Alaska. And another good friend of mine, Sam Stid, had spent much of his childhood up there. And, always raved about it. So in the back of my mind, I always had this dream of moving to Alaska. And, um, the thing was, the thing that I'd been told, uh, it, it was that, Oh, you don't want to go up there unless you have a job. And so, you know, the proposition of arranging for something like that back in the seventies was a real long shot. Um, and it ended up that, um, Don's dad, Norm, had gotten wind that we were interested in this Alaska. And he had a friend by the name of Jim Sweeney, who was an Alaska pipeline camp manager, live and good, north of Fairbanks. And um, he told us he'd give us jobs. And he sent us a letter. 
Uh, Jim Sweeney sent us a letter from Alaska and told us to uh, cut our hair and get a union card and come on up. And the next day we left Ketchum, cut our hairs, got our union cards, and began driving Don's VW camper up to Fairbanks in uh, summer 1975. Took us six days of driving and at, uh, oh gosh, 12 hours a day and three hour shifts. <laughs> and we finally arrived in Fairbanks. And we had maybe, maybe 50 bucks between us, but we were static, ready to make our fortune on the pipeline. And, um, but what had happened was in the interim from when Jim had offered us jobs on the pipeline, the Alaska State Legislature had, legislature had passed a bill saying that you had to be a resident for six months before you could be hired. So here we were <laughs> up in Fairbanks, um, you know, 50 bucks. And, you know, Jim says, you know, he felt terrible about it and, he gave us both $500 and $100 bills out of a wallet thick with hundreds and said, hey, sorry I couldn't help you out, but good luck. And so, you know, for me at least, and I think Don too, I mean, we were, you know, I was fine. I was I was in heaven. I was in Alaska and I had a $500 grub stake. And at that time, it felt like a lot of money. And I ended up spending the next 17 years in Alaska. <laughs> so... Uh, that October, um, I ended up getting a job as a lodge caretaker at the Independence Mine, which was uh, in a in a place called Hatcher Pass, sixty miles north of Anchorage, and um, I had a job caretaking that place. It's fifty dollars a week, all I could eat and all I could drink, and I was in the middle of the incredible range called the Southern Talkeetna Mountains. In Alaska, so um, so yeah, I was in a backcountry skiers paradise, and um, at that time, the only way into the lodge was to ski or snowmobile in from seven miles down the road from where they stopped plowing. So um, so yeah, you were out there, and you know it was uh, the best thing that could have ever happened to me. You know, to be in the middle of the mountains, to learn to become a better skier, and learn about the mountains, and. Uh, you know, it was interesting back in that back in that time. There really wasn't um, much information on avalanches or even um, mountain travel for you know you know there wasn't that much. But I did stumble onto a, a, a Sierra Club tote book titled "Wilderness Skiing" by Lito Teada Flores and Alan Steck, published in 1972, and I still have it. And um, in that book as well, they talked about skiing in the Alps. And next thing you know, I'm kind of, you know, I'm kind of intrigued with, you know, with the Alps and going over there and ski. And I bought a Houtroot Hout Root guide book that was published by some English guides. And, and um, so um, a year or so later, I, as luck would have it, I met a German girl at the lodge. And she was also a skier. And. Not long after that, I moved to Germany uh, with sights set on two things. I wanted to, I wanted to visit Ireland, you know, with Murphy as the last name, and I wanted to ski in the Alps. And so um, that's what um, that's what I ended up doing for the you know for the next year. I ended up spending a year in Europe. It was around uh, nineteen. It was winter of seventy seven, seventy eight, and so. So that was, um, you know, on top of Alaska, going to Europe, and it was just like, yeah, it was a very, you know, fortunate time in my life, and uh, got to do some cool skiing. And but after a year, I was ready to get back to Alaska, and I got in touch with a friend of mine by the name of Hap Worldser. And I had met Hap back when I was working at the Independence Lodge, and Hap had a ten-acre, um, a ten-acre parcel of land one mile down from the old Independence. And um, we had always talked about trying to do something skiing oriented out of that lodge or, or out of the, out of the, you know, building something there. And um, so um, long story short, after I came back from, from, you know, from Europe, I had, you know, I had seen these huts and kind of had this idea that, that, that I shared with Hap of, you know, Hey, maybe we can, 
build up, you know, make kind of a, a sort of a rudimentary hut up here, have some uh, have some hearty food and you know something to drink and some place for people to sleep. And so we ended up building the Hatcher Pass Lodge, which is still there, still there today, and Hap's still running it. So. Um, so yeah, that was um, that was kind of my you know sort of my introduction to skiing and Europe, and then coming back to Alaska and um, and um, somewhere along the line there, uh, it would have been in 1979. I went into I heard about this avalanche clinic that that was going on in Anchorage, and I went in there to attend this course. And uh, Rod Newcomb was teaching, Yvonne Chouinard was there, Peter Lev, um, and, and Doug Fessler was also there. And so I met Doug for the first time at that, at that, um, at that avalanche course. And he, he knew that I was living up in, uh, up in Hatcher Pass, and he wanted to give me a weather station so that I could take twice daily OBS and report back to, um, to the Alaska Avalanche Warning Center. And so out of the blue, suddenly now I'm like, I have this awesome weather station. I'm taking twice daily OBS and actually getting paid for it. Radioing into the, uh, radioing down to Palmer, um, telling them, you know, what my observations were. And then they would in turn use the telephone to, call in and tell the warning center in, in, uh, in Anchorage what the, uh, what I thought the conditions were. And so, um, so, um, yeah, so that was my, you know, beginning to get exposed to, uh, to, uh, you know, to other observations and, and, and avalanches and as well, um, working with Doug and he, you know, he, he became, um, he became one of my mentors, uh, no doubt, and really uh, was a great guy to hang out with. And ended up that he um, also ran avalanche courses up at the Independence Lodge, so I would help him haul equipment up. And um, were you still he, working working at the Independence Lodge at the time of the ski lodge as well? No. Um, I was living and living and working where we were building the ski lodge mm-hmm. in one of the small, in one of the small, one of the small huts there. And, um, so, you know, Doug could make it up, you know, however far he could make it up the road. And then from there I'd help him haul tables and, you know, projectors and stuff like that up. And he would like say, hey, yeah, you, you know, if you want to come to a course, you know, feel free to sit in, you know? So I sat in on many, many courses and eventually I ended up helping him, uh, in the field uh, for, for, uh, uh, for one season, which was, um, you know, kind of my exposure to, you know, sort of avalanche education in the, uh, in the eighties and, and, um, got to meet, um, he would often have guest speakers come from outside. So I got to meet a bunch of folks that, um, you know, a bunch of avalanche pros from the, from outside, um, that were, um, that were attending. And I guess the other thing that happened right around that same time, we're talking early 80s, was um, uh, the Coronado Mine decided to open up, and which was in that same region, um, and began gold mining. And they needed to have some avalanche control work take place in order to open the road and to open the portals up to their into their mine. And a fellow by the name of Dave Hamry, um, was at a company that did control work and he ended up hiring me to assist him in doing the control work for the, for the mine. So, so I was exposed to, you know, uh, you know, learning how to, um, mitigate avalanches and with Dave and another fellow by the name of Jack Herbert. And so, you know, um, that was kind of my, my early exposure to, to avalanches and the, the backcountry and, and, um, life in Alaska. 
Well, certainly some some notable names in there for for mentorship along the way, and and um, sounds like a pretty amazing early education in in mountain sense and uh, snow and avalanche forecasting. Um, what did the what did the ski guiding program look like at the uh, Hatcher Pass Lodge? Um, there was really, you know, there was really nothing like that. Um, at that point in time, really, when I first started up there in the mid seventies, I mean, you know, I, you know, you, you would very rarely even see anybody skiing in the back country in the eighties when the lodge started, um, we set about, um, oh, about no, any, anywhere from 10 to 20 K of, of Nordic track, depending upon kind of what kind of snow coverage we had. Um, so, so we had, uh, you know, we had some Nordic track set and then there was of course a lot of great, you know, um, just, you know, above, above treeline skiing because the, the entire area up there is, is above treeline. So you, so you, you get up there and, you know, you see someplace you want to climb or go skiing, you just kind of point your skis and start skinning up. So yeah, no, no guiding program. It was, uh, at that point in time, you know, I kind of had moved on from, from, you know, from helping, uh, Hamry and with, you know, with his, uh, avalanche program, I started to spend more time developing the lodge because we ended, you know, ended up having a pretty much a full restaurant and a bar and overnight accommodations for about 20 people. Mm. Year round. Uh, yeah, pretty much other than, other than the spring, Mm -hmm. you know, we shut down, we shut down, uh, like toward the end of April and then reopen, uh, like first of July. Right. But yeah. Let mud season clear out a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. But yeah, it was kind of a, it was kind of a year round thing. I ended up meeting my wife, Courtney up there in Hatcher Pass. And at some point in time, we decided that, uh, we were ready to leave, we were ready to leave Hatcher Pass, leave Alaska. And we ended up driving down to, um, to, um, Crested Butte sight unseen and started a new life. Hmm. So what, what yeah. year was that? Uh, I think it was fall of 88. Okay. Yeah. And did you have some opportunities there lined up or, or just kind of showed up to town and, and started a, a bit of a new life? Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, we were totally winging it. Um, the one thing that we did know was that um, we always knew that we could, um, you know, that we could go back to Alaska and work mm-hmm. uh, in the, in the uh, you know, in the hospitality industry. And in fact, we ended up, we, we ended up getting jobs pretty quickly running a lodge um, on the ocean um, just outside, across the bay from Homer, Alaska. And so we, so for two seasons, we went back and forth between Crested Butte and, uh, and Homer, um, place called the Kachemak Bay Wilderness Lodge over in China Poop Bay. And, uh, like I say, about five miles, five miles or so straight across the end of the spit from Homer. Hmm. And we ended up, you know, running that lodge for the, uh, for the folks that owned it. They wanted to take some time off and they had, they had visited us up in Hatcher Pass and had come down to Crested Butte and, recruited us for two years and at the end of that we kind of said yeah let's go see what a summer in lower 48 is like because uh, we hadn't had a summer in the lower 48 in many many years and so um we decided to try to make something work in crested butte we built a little property management business where we were taking care of second homes and around that same time too um i met uh, jean paviard who was who was uh, running a guide service at the time Calls Adventures to the Edge, and um, he and I talked about offering avalanche courses, and um, we began to we began to you know craft an approach to doing that. So that would have been Crested Butte in the early nineties. And what was his background? Um, Jean was a um, was or is uh, an IFMGA certified mountain guide from Switzerland, and. Uh, so he was, um, he had married, um, uh, Mary Kane, who, um, who was an American and he ended up, um, kind of ending up in Telluride and then in, um, uh, then in Crested Butte. And, um, so he was running a, you know, full on, full on guide service out of Crested Butte. And one of the things he was doing was, uh, 
wanting to start up uh, an avalanche program. And so um, I ended up, uh, I ended up becoming his uh, kind of the director of his avalanche program in the early nineties. So Tom, describe, describe what uh, Crested Butte was like in the late eighties, early nineties, you know, in terms of specifically within the backcountry skiing scene. And then, you know, it sounds like uh, obviously there was a need for avalanche education, but how, how did that come about? What was the scene like? Yeah, well, I think, you know, that, that, you know, that, uh, backcountry skiing was definitely, you know, something that was, that was, you know, that was happening and that was growing around, um, around the West in general and Crested Butte. Part of the reason why, why I wanted to move there was because I, because I could see that, uh, you know, that the, um, you know, that the, that, that the mountains were perfect for touring. And I remember one of the very first newspapers that I got when I was up in Alaska, I, I subscribed to the Chronicle and Pilot. And, uh, one of the very first newspapers I got was about an avalanche that came out of Red Lady Bowl and covered the road. And I think, um, I think uh, who was it was running an avalanche course at the time it was Don Bachman was involved mm. uh, or was close by when it happened. And I got that paper and I thought to myself, Oh my God, this is perfect. You know, they have avalanches there too. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, totally. And I had a couple of buddies of mine up in, up in Alaska had mentioned uh, skiing there folks, friends of mine who had gone to Western state here in Gunnison and, had skied up there, and and so um, so yeah, so sight unseen. We drove from Alaska down the highway. First time I I drove up with Don, and then I drove out with my wife, and that was the only two times I ever traveled the highway. <laughs> yeah, that was enough. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. But uh, yeah, and so um, you know that was incredible for me. You know, it was like Crested Butte was still kind of um, you know kind of a kind of, I'm not going to say a backwater, but it hadn't really been discovered. And, um, as it is now, um, as I mentioned to you earlier, um, before we got on the, on the interview, uh, we bought a house downtown back then. I think it was early, like 1990, I think. And, um, after we had decided that, yeah, Crested Beast, the thing for us, um, that's where we wanted to kind of settle and not go back to Alaska. And we had paid $58,000 for it furnished. And, um, and that was like something that, uh, like a ski bum like myself could actually, you know, we could actually pull that off with a, um, with a a loan or two from various family. Uh, back then you had to come up with 20% down. So we had to, you know, we came up with that and, we had this wonderful little house in downtown Crested Butte and uh, started our business. I ended up hooking up with Jean and started teaching avalanche courses, kind of crafting what they would look like and, and uh, meeting a bunch of uh, great folks who were, in, who were in, in, involved in the backcountry there back, back then. Right. And so over time, um, you all saw a need to, to create a bit more of a standardized curriculum for avalanche education. Talk a little bit about how that came about and your, maybe your thought process going into that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, um, we, our, our courses were filling up pretty nicely in Crested Butte. We have maybe, we do maybe five or six courses a year, as I recall. Um, and things were, you know, things were beginning to change in the backcountry. Insofar as like, you know, uh, you know, you had, you know, movies like, you know, Blizzard of Oz, you had the extreme comps happening in Alaska, you had forest service gates opening up at ski areas, um, and that along the way, um, you know, along with the gear kind of developing too, it, uh, you begin to, um, you know, you begin to see a, a, you know, a sort of a, a spike in, a spike in avalanche accidents and um, people were, you know, doing bigger lines um, at that same period of time. Um, Snow Machine World as well was, uh, was developing in a big way. It's much, much more powerful sleds being able to get into, uh, you know, deeper back into avalanche terrain and 
consequently, you know, they were experiencing some avalanche fatalities too. So, so we were pretty intent at the time um, when we were running uh, avalanche courses at Adventures to the Edge to cater to not only backcountry skiers, but also to um, snowmobilers at the time too. But, you know, during the 90s, there was not as much interest in the, in the, you know, from the motorized sled group um, as there was from the uh, skiing group. So we ended up sort of focusing more on that. And um, what, um, what happened during that period of time, we're talking mid-90s now, uh, Jean had taken on the role of technical direct director at the American Mountain Guides Association. And he was actively working toward getting the AMGA, the American Mountain Guides Association, accepted into the IFMGA, which is the International Association of Mountain Guides, uh, of which Jean was a member. And it was during that vetting process where the IFMGA would send um, representatives from member countries to come to come and kind of audit what the uh, what the AMGA was doing at the time. And so it was during that vetting process that Jean met Carl Clausen and Colin Zacharias. They were, they were both um, uh, they were both IFMGA guides from Canada and um, and who both became involved with area over time. And um, so one thing that the IFMGA kind of wanted to see was an intact avalanche training program for guides that was national in scope you know, with the intent of, you know, getting guides singing off the same same sheet of music. And at that time, there was no program such as this in the U.S. And there were no, there were actually no published avalanche course guidelines at all at the time. So that was, um, you know, the development of an avalanche education program that provided a standardized stream of avalanche education, you know, beginning at the novice backcountry travel through the professional level, was um, what we en- ended setting our sights on. And um, we knew it was going to be a long road, but we thought, man, what the hell, you know, we've got this, you know, we have a we have a, 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 a guide service here in Crested Butte that we can work out of. We have permits. We've already developed um, uh, interest in our, in our level one recreation courses and level two recreation courses. We were starting to teach courses around the state and, and, um, you know, so there was, you know, the demand for courses was building. Um, and we did our first professional level course. Um, and we called, called it a level three at the time. was held in Crested Butte in uh, 1995. And it was really during that period that we began to, you know, sort of craft the concept uh, uh, of what area would become and, also, when Carl and myself and Jean began working to, together to develop some ideas for a curriculum, um, it was um, an you know a really uh, interesting intersection of people and myself and Jean and Carl. Um, Jean was sort of the um, kind of the visionary type, and Carl was kind of the full-on technical, no-nonsense kind of guy, and I'd had some small business background. So it was uh, kind of a fortuitous grouping that ended up building the foundation for Ari to move forward on. You know, additionally, we had Jean coming over from from Europe, who was utilizing Munter's 3x3. Carl coming from Canada, which did have a national avalanche program in place. And me coming from Alaska with experience working with Fessler and and Fredston's authors of Snow Sense, and also the time that I spent working for the Forecast Center and doing avalanche control work, and so, so, so we kind of had this, you know, this, you know, this this idea that, yeah, we can we can do something here. Um, you know, you couple that with at that point in time too, we started to see some exciting advances uh, coming along in the avalanche world. You had McCammon's uh, heuristics and Dale Atkins' research into human factors. And so between, you know, 
you know, between the three of us, I think we thought we could come up with a, you know, with a hybrid program. And um, above and beyond that, you know, I was, I was really motivated to get a thought out progression for the courses that we were teaching locally that I was responsible for because, you know, we didn't have anything like that. I mean, I was kind of modeling my, you know, my courses, um, you know, around the, the avalanche triangle. And, um, here it was, I was looking at the three by three and I was looking at what, what, uh, Carl was bringing down from Canada. And I think we, um, we just thought that, you know, we could, um, you know, we could, you know, we could make a hybrid, we could do something better. We could create our own, um, but not without a lot of help from people, providers, instructors from around the U.S. Um, Jean ended up inviting a, um, a number of avalanche course providers and instructors to come out to Crested Butte and take part in a brainstorming session as to what, um, you know, as to what a good, you know, program from, beginner to professional would, would look like. And so guys like, we had guys like Tom Carter, Bela Vadez, Mark Shalvin and John Tierney from back East, Brian Lazar, Alan Bernholtz, Freddie Gross McClaws, Howie Schwartz, Vince Anderson, Tim Villanueva, just to name a few. I'm sure I've forgotten some other ones too. And so we began, you know, in this, uh, in this room, downstairs in a little hotel up in Mount Crested Butte with Carl kind of running the show. And, and that would have been in the year 2000. And we started to craft this, you know, this, this idea for, uh, you know, for a progression. And, um, and Tom, what, what, is it safe to say that most of those individuals were uh, part of the AMGA at that time? Um. Uh, yeah, I'd say, you know, some of them, not all of them, but yeah, some of them. Yep. Yeah. It must've been, yeah. it must've been nice to have the, right. The need was there. The AMGA was seeing the need. Right. And so, um, you know, it, it seems like it was very evident that things needed to become standardized, at least for the AMGA to become recognized from the IFMGA. Yeah, for sure. No doubt about that. And, you know, as well, that was right around the period of time, um, you know, where, um, you know, where the, where the, where the AAA, the American Avalanche Association was beginning to build their, um, snow and weather and avalanche guidelines. So mm -hmm. they were kind of beginning to, you know, to build a standardized approach to, to, um, you know, to that. Um, additionally, we had, you know, approached the AAA years, actually years earlier and, and, you know, my hope was that they had something in place, you know, that they could just provide us with so we didn't have to go through, uh, you know, the, the development of all this. But, it, it, you know, at that point in time, they just didn't have the bandwidth to, to develop the course, uh, course guidelines and course material and that sort of thing. And, and they just weren't, um, they just weren't, you know, they just weren't ready for the challenge. And so uh, ends up that we were. Sure. It wasn't like, wasn't like we were the only people that could, that could have done it. Mm -hmm. But um, we were there and we were poised and uh, fired up to doing it. So that's, you know, that uh, is kind of the starts of the starts vary. Well, and right there, you, you mentioned some people from the Northeast, right? And so like, mm -hmm. you, like you mentioned earlier, the goal was to get everybody singing on the same sheet of music um, throughout the whole country. Um <laughs> What were some things that you all took into consideration when when trying to create this more consistent curriculum? Well, I think um, I think one of the things that I you know that I need to mention is that you know one of the most powerful things about that one of those that first meeting I think was all of us being in a room for multiple days sharing these ideas and concepts in avalanche education. And that was something that had, I had never experienced and neither had any of those people. And I think we saw, uh, you know, we saw the, 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 you know, the, the power of that. And so some of the things that we, 
you know, started to take into consideration was that, um, you know, the existing, the existing situation was there was no communication among providers and instructors. The internet was pretty much in its infancy, so we didn't have, you know, the communication power that we have today. And so, um, I think one of the things that we were seeing was that um, the courses of of our time at that time um, were more about kind of uh, you know fire hosing people with you know with information and um, not spending as much time in in the field and not necessarily focusing so much on decision making so. This was something that we, you know, that we said to ourselves, um, and in particular, you know, I could see, I could see at the end of some of my courses that I had provided folks with a lot of good, solid information, but, um, but no real clear cut way for them to make order out of the chaos once they left, uh, you know, once they left the course. And so, um, so some of the things that we, you know, you know, that we focused on was some uh, kind of some basic tenets when we began to craft the curriculum. And one of the things that, you know, that, that we put out there and that is still in place today is our mantra then as, 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 as it is now is for instructors to ask the question of ourselves, is this information going to help my student make a better decision in the field? And, um, Additionally, did the student get an opportunity to apply this new skill or knowledge in the decision-making process? So that kind of drove sort of what, um, you know, our thinking process as we were building our first instructor manual in, in the year 2000. Um, and it's been, um, you know, it's been, the you know, the, the focus ever since was to know that after the course, you know, that students could go into avalanche terrain and they'd have a, they'd have a, a decision-making process that they could apply to help make informed decisions. And hence that was the start of the development of our decision-making framework or the DMF and our most recent iteration of curriculum, what I call ARI 3.0. It's, it's the third, it's the third rendition of curriculum since, since the year 2000 and which, the decision-making process there is revolves around plan, ride, and debrief. Um, so, so yeah, um, you know, our goals were to, you know, to, you know, increase the public awareness of avalanche avalanches and avalanche safety and provide a high quality avalanche education. Um, and those are still our goals. Um, so, yeah. It seems like Ari's done a great job of giving different providers um, the resources to to make sure that everybody's singing off the same sheet of music. Maybe talk a little bit about how, like what's a what is a provider? I think that's a little bit unique to the Ari organization, right? Is that the sure. curriculum is developed by Ari and then provided to the providers to then deliver to the students. Right, right. Yeah, and providers um, are anything from, you know, established guide services to, to, uh, to, to colleges, to, um, you know, to private institutions. I think the main thing that most providers have to have in place is a, um, is a permit to be able to, um, to work on, on for service ground. And so, um, so a provider, um, you know, is, is, is someone that signs up with us. They, they send their instructors to one of our instructor training courses. Um, they go through, a, you know, a, a, you know, a process of qualification, you know, that you're, you know, that you yourself are familiar with. And then from there, they, um, we, you know, we, we provide the uh, provider with um, the course materials provide the instructor with the instructor instructor handbook, um, the students with the student manual, uh, the airy field book, 
And uh, we also provide continuing education too for um, for our instructors. Right. How, how many providers are there these days? You have that ballpark there's, figure. Yeah, there, there's a there's a little over a hundred providers now. Uh-huh. You know, which um, which you know I think is one of the interesting things about that is that really the only reason that we have that growth in providership is because of the growth in people wanting to have education. Um, if there weren't people going into the back country and if they weren't interested in education, there would be no need for, you know, for the program that we provide. But um, it looks like that's not the case based on, uh, based on the growth that we've seen um, in the last, uh, in the last 20 years. Yeah. I, I was able to pull some stats just from Sean Zimmerman wall. Thanks Sean. Um, and he, he gave me some stats that last year, the winter of 1920, and mind you, this is ending three weeks early, but there were over 11,500 students taking ARI rec courses, just rec courses, not including the, the pro program. And, and that was a 5, 5.6% increase from the year before. So, yeah, and we we're seeing it in backcountry gear sales as well. Like it, it, is, it is blowing up out there. Yeah, it really is. Um, it's, um, and, and I get it. I mean, I, you know, I loved it from day one. <laughs> <laughs> still do. And yeah, and still do. I mean, it's like, it's a, it's an awesome, you know, it's an awesome obsession. Um, and glad to, you know, glad to have been exposed to it and have latched onto it as a lifestyle for, well, the last, uh, what, 50 years now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so Yeah. Yeah, quite the legacy and, and quite the network of providers and instructor teams that are out there. Um, I think when I think about area, I think about that as being the the strongest part of area is just that that network, that web of of qualified instructors that have been through you know a similar training program, right? And and one as an area instructor, I think that things have come leaps and bounds just in terms of the online resources available to instructors and students, right? That seems like, um, especially now in the COVID-19 pandemic, that's, um, absolutely necessary, right? Yeah, for sure. And, you you know, I agree with you, you you know, about that network. I mean, um, I think that was one of the, the most fun parts of my job was, going to instructor trainings and meeting, you know, meeting these, you know, uh, you know, individuals from, you know, from around the States, from around North America, South America. And, um, and, uh, you know, I keep coming back to that, you know, the idea of, of, uh, you know, being able to sit in a room and share ideas and concepts with, you know, with, with fellow instructors of, you know, of a like mind. During the, you know, during the 80s and, and 90s, it was very, you know, avalanche instruction was very regionalized. You know, you had folks running courses, you know, up in Idaho, Wyoming, uh, California, Utah, Colorado, you know, wherever, and all the western mountain states. But everyone was kind of in their own bubble, not necessarily because they wanted to be, but just because that was just kind of how, what it was like. And once we started to tap into inviting, you know, some of these folks to, to, um, you know, to our instructor training courses, things, things began to shift. Think, people began to see the strength in, in being able to, you know, sit down and talk about what worked for them, what didn't work for them. How do we make, you know, how do we better connect with our students? That was one of the big things that we saw as we were, you know, as, as we were creating area that it wasn't just simply about creating curriculum. That part of it is actually, you know, that that part of it is actually not that hard. If you use instructional design principles, uh, that's, that's pretty simple. But what, what we wanted to do was to help, you know, be able to help our instructors connect with these concepts to our, you know, to the students. And, you know, how could we help them do that? And 
consequently, that's, you know, why we had our instructor training programs that, you know, that shared, you know, ideas in, um, you know, in teaching techniques in different ways to, um, you know, to assuage, uh, you know, the new students that was coming to make them, you know, less fearful and uh, not afraid to ask questions. You know, one of the ways that we did that, I'm sure some people still do, was um, right off the bat in our course, we would have a case study of an avalanche accident somewhere. And we group the students into, you know, into tables, have them look at the case study, and then talk about it. And in all my, all the other avalanche courses that I had ever been involved with uh, in years past, the case study was always something that we did at the end. And we turned that on its end because what we wanted to do, and I think what we did do by doing that, was a couple of things. The first thing was, as folks were reading through these, these case studies, they could identify, you know, kind of where some of the, you know, some of, you know, some of the mistakes were made, some of the things that were done right, some of the things that were, you know, that were done wrong. And we were able to, they were able then to communicate at, the, at, a, at a table with some students who they had just met and begin to learn how to communicate, begin to learn how to, you know, kind of have a discussion about avalanches, and to also see at the end of that session how much they really knew about, about avalanches, even without even starting the course. There's an element of common sense to this. And so between, you know, making the student aware of that for themselves and getting them to feel comfortable with communicating with their fellow students. That was, you know, one of the methods that we used right off the bat to prime the classroom, prime the students to, um, to, to become, you know, engaged learners. So Tom, over, over time, you know, it sounds like the, the network is growing. Um, and eventually it's, it becomes time for the, the high court to, to kind of pass the reins down, right? Talk about how the organization grew and, and things got passed, passed down to other, other folks um, aside from you and John and Carl. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I think I was, you know, I was sort of kind of actively involved for somewhere in the vicinity of 15 years for sure, maybe 20. And, um, you know, kind of if I, if, if I count back in the 90s, you know, so I had five years there and then basically I ended up kind of walking away and um, handing it over um, in 2015. And um, so I could see for me, it was just time to step back. I was, I was ready. Um, and, um, you know, we, you know, we needed to see if this thing had the legs to stand on its own. So, mm. so. I had, you know, having been there from the start, you know, toward the uh, toward the end of, of you know of, of my my gig. Brian Brian Lazar was the ED at the time. Ben Pritchett was our program director, and Don Savila was our office manager. And they all knew that I was looking to retire, and they were supportive of it. And um, so, so yeah, we uh, we added some new folks to our board, and we brought some new folks onto our education committee. And just began to take all kinds of new and exciting strides forward. And, um, you know, I had the, I had the faith that, you know, what we had done up to that point, you know, would provide the, you know, the foundation necessary for this thing to continue to thrive. It makes me happy that, you know, that by chance, um, you know, we had positioned ourselves uh, early on to, you know, to address the need that's been, you know, that's, that's, that's currently happening. I think as well, your, your, you know, your reference to the, you know, to COVID and the online learning and stuff is also something that, you know, that we ended up positioning ourselves well on because it was probably about five or six years ago, I, I presented to our EdCom that we should begin to come up with more online learning so we could spend more time in the field. And around that time, uh, Liz Meter Riggs came on um, board with this. She has a, had a, has a master's in education. And she began working um, 
working full time with us here. And she's been developing our online program now for at least four or five years. So, you know, so we're well positioned, you know, for the COVID thing. Back to passing the reins, you know, it was uh, it was time to see if it'd stand on its own. And it's and it is. And so, uh, so, yeah, I feel I feel, you know, fortunate to have been part of, you know, building that foundation. And we should mention you're still on the, the airy board, right? Uh, that's that's correct. Yeah. yeah. So you haven't been able to fully step away, which is which is totally understandable. I think anybody in your shoes would would uh, probably feel the same way. Tom, any any hopes for the future of Avalanche education, or what do you think is the biggest need these days in 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 Avalanche education? You know, I think one of the things we're seeing is there's an, an enormous amount of research and questioning and innovation that's taking place in the avalanche education field today. Um, you know, I know that, uh, you know, that at Aerie, we've always been dedicated to making sure that this research doesn't go on some shelf somewhere and gather dust, you know, and I know that was one of the main reasons why we would just scour the ISSW back and, you know, always have, always will be looking for those pieces of those pieces of research and pieces of new information that are coming along that we can um, insert into our program if appropriate. So, um, so I think that's an, that's a fantastic thing that we've got going right now. I mean, there's so many folks, so many young folks that are coming out of uh, these various um, snow studies programs at different universities that are really, um, you know, really digging into it and really coming out with some, with some, some great ideas, some great in, innovation. Um, one of the things that we do have in place is we have the one day snow and avalanche workshops, which are great. Um, of course, as I mentioned, you know, we have the ISSW. And so these are, these are great venues, um, you know, to get together and begin to share ideas. However, I do feel that we still need to have multiple day, um, training courses, exchange courses, whatever you want to call them. Cause I think, like you said, like, you know, like you mentioned with the network of, of instructors and providers that we have in place, as well as all the other folks out there who are involved in the industry to be able to get together and, you know, craft some, you know, craft some ideas for, you know, for how do we make this better? You know, how do we make this better for providers, instructors, and ultimately our students? I think we continue to work on online content so that, uh, so that we can spend, you know, less time in the classroom during the course and more time in the field. I also see the continued work of Avalanche Forecast Centers playing a big role. You know, they're the expert opinion link that's easily accessible you know, to our students. And that's, um, and that's, uh, has, has really uh, excelled in the last 10, 15 years. Forecast centers are in most mountain towns now, most mountain regions. And these guys do an incredible job. So I think part of the future for avalanche education as well lies in, um, lies in those, in, in, in those agencies continuing to, um, you know, continuing to suss out what needs to be, you know, what needs to be said, what needs to be communicated. And they're just, you know, really making leaps and bounds in that. Um, but I think most of all, you know, you know, that we need to collaborate and make sure that, you know, we don't, uh, you know, we don't get into a bubble because it's, um, you know, it's just so much fun being able to communicate and share ideas and concepts in avalanche education with other passionate individuals. Tom, do you have a, a story you'd like to share about a close call or a funny moment or remembrance of a mentorship opportunity any anything come to mind from your career yeah actually i've got a pretty funny uh story from when i was doing avalanche control work up in uh up in hatcher pass on the uh, on the hatcher pass road back when they used to keep that open for the for the mine um as i mentioned i was working with a guy by the name of jack herbert and Jack Herbert's dad, John Herbert, was um, one of the first U.S. 
for service rangers who was working out of Alta. And he arranged for Monty Atwater to get his first piece of artillery. And so, so Jack, um, Jack went quite a ways back and, and, you know, and Jack also worked at Alta as well too, in, in, in the avalanche control with Dave Hamry. And that's how, that's how he got up to, that's how Jack ended up getting to Alaska. Mm. So Jack and I, um, we were putting together this, this control program. Dave Hamry had worked with Liam, Fitz, Liam Fitzgerald in um, mapping out our, um, the avalanche pass for this rather, you know, about 17 miles worth of road that we had to, that we had to control. And so um, uh, Hamry had arranged for a, uh, a avalancher to be put on the back of the call. And so we had this ancient thigh call um, that we had this avalanche mounted on the back so we could move, you know, so we could move around, you know, down the road and stuff and put shots in here and there. And, um, and so we were all proud of this. This was kind of like our little roving piece of artillery. And so we had the, uh, the mine brass out to show them, to show them this, uh, you know, this, you know, how the avalanche worked and how the thigh call worked. And so all the mine brass and a bunch of the miners came out to, to watch us, um, to watch us fire around, uh, and trigger an avalanche potentially. So the gunner will remain unnamed, but anyways, the gunner got up on the, uh, got up on the platform, primed the gun, pulled the trigger and the round completely went over the top of the mountain (laughs) into, into another valley. (laughs) Fortunately, where we were, you know, there's nothing out there. So, uh, so nothing was destroyed. No one was hurt. Um, but it was so funny to see the face of the gunner looking back at the, at the mine brass going, uh, (laughs) maybe we'll try this again. Uh, but, um, anyways. So you guys, you guys lowered the barrel and plugged one in, I'm sure. (laughs) That's all we did. Yep. <laughs> but, That's uh, great. Anyway, anyways, those were those were fun times and uh, learned a lot. I'm glad I got out of it alive. I mean, the avalanche of that day was a pretty dangerous rig, um, and uh, the fact that we were just up there with no protection. You know, now now, like for example, I think CAIC. I think they require their guys to stand like you know thirty feet away when they fire it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but anyways, yeah, was glad to get out of that one alive. Oh, that's a great story. Well, yeah. Well, Tom, thanks so much for taking the time and thanks for so much for your contributions to avalanche education in the United States and, and internationally, we should say there are some international area programs, I believe. Sure. Sure. Um, so yeah. thank, thank you very much for, for everything that you've done and, and your dedication to, education and curriculum development yeah yeah well thanks so much for the you know for the opportunity Caleb I know it's been uh you know you got a great program going here you've really interviewed a bunch of bunch of fantastic folks in the industry and um and and yeah it's been a it's it, as I mentioned it's been a, a great obsession for me this backcountry skiing thing and I feel fortunate to have seen that guy skiing into the woods all those years ago up in Mount Mount Hood and Look forward to many more years of skiing into the woods myself. So, so take care, Caleb. All right. I, I look forward to the time we can go make some turns together, Tom. Likewise, man. All right. Cheers. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that interview with Tom. I know I did. Big thanks to you our listeners, for keeping this thing rolling. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. Tell that friend to tell a friend. If you're really enjoying the podcast, do us a solid and go over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review us. Give us a follow on the socials. We're on Facebook and Instagram some of the time, fairly reluctantly, but we're there. Of course, our artwork was created by Mike T. You demand T. For any of your illustration needs, head on over to triple-dub.miketea.com and check out some of Mike's work. 
um, get in touch with him. Some artwork for a sticker or a new logo made. Mike's your man. Check him out. Musical track for today's episode was written and performed by Chris Kaplinski. Thanks, Chris, for your contribution to the podcast. I'll tell you, the, the Avalanche Hour podcast cash is brimming full right now with content. Um, both content that I've curated as well as um, some, some guest hosts from around the world. We've got more involvement going on from Canada right now as well as um, some voices from Europe that are going to be on the show soon. So with that, we're going to have a bonus episode next week, Tuesday, February 9th, where you can hear an interview that I conducted with Alex Ibbotson. Um, And so that's going to be a a great episode. Looking further out in the calendar, we're going to have another episode with guest host Sean Zimmerman Wall. Um, so definitely looking forward to that. And of course, you'll have your, your third Thursday with Wes Craig coming up. So that's what's going on in February in the, the Avalanche Hour podcast world. So until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers. Cheers.